at Christmas, one of the titles that is often described of the baby born in Bethlehem is the title, Son of God. It's a very, very, very important title. And we will look at this title next week. But do you know what was Jesus' favorite and most used title to refer to himself? It was Jesus, Son of Man. And by the way, no one else ever used this title to refer to Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus saw, alone saw himself as a Son of Man. What does that title mean? We know what the title Son of God is, but Son of Man? What could Jesus mean by it? Well, I encourage you to open Scripture to John chapter 3. We'll be reading only a few verses from this chapter. We'll be reading throughout the sermon verses from other parts of the gospel. If you have a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 922. John chapter 3, we'll be reading from verse 12 to verse 15. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's ask the Spirit of God to illumine our minds to understand it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus you came down to us to be like us in order to reveal to us the ways of heaven and the way to heaven. Father, we ask now through your Holy Spirit, don't leave us alone. Don't leave our minds to our own interpretations. We ask that you give us your Holy Spirit's illumination so that we may understand this word for us at this time. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, when people hear the title, Son of Man, given to Jesus, what do you think they hear? When you hear the title, Son of Man, what do you think it means? It is not unusual for most people to assume that this title points to Jesus' humanity. And certainly, this is one of the truths of the gospel and of the Christmas message that in Jesus, God has become man. In Jesus, God the Son has taken human form. Yes, he identified himself with mankind and eventually died in the place of man as man's substitute, as his representative in order to rescue man from enslavement to sin. So we should not be surprised 
that Jesus used this title for himself. Jesus, Son of Man. But we must understand what this phrase meant to any Jewish ear in the first century. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the phrase Son of Man simply referred to man. We, we get this meaning in Psalm 144 where the psalmist says, O Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? So, so one way in which the Old Testament thought of this phrase, the son of man, was a very general way of referring to people, men and women, young and old. But there's a second way in which the phrase Son of Man was used in the Old Testament. And it is, one of, it is used in one of the most important prophecies about the future. And it's in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And here's what Daniel, the prophet, saw. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This text is a significant background to understand the title Son of Man on Jesus' lips. One like a Son of Man coming with the clouds was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Now the punchline in Daniel's vision was not simply that a divine figure was going to assume all this glory and power. The punchline in Daniel's vision is that one who received all this was one like a son of man. This is a shocking news in Daniel's vision. One like the son of man was going to receive all authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all peoples, nations, and men of every language will worship him. And his kingdom shall never end and never be destroyed? One like a son of man? We would understand if all of this was going to belong to God. But one like a son of man? So when Jesus comes on the scene of history, he takes on human flesh, and his favorite title to refer to himself is... Jesus, Son of Man, who is He? He came as a Son of Man, preparing the way for the fulfillment of the end times, claiming that He is the one prophesied about in the prophecy of Daniel. This is the Old Testament background for the phrase, Son of Man, on the lips of Jesus. But Jesus' use of this title has three meanings, had, that deep, had four meanings that had deep implications for the readers of John's gospel in the first century. 
and for us. The first three Gospels also use the phrase, Jesus, Son of Man. But the Gospel of John uses this phrase in a unique way. And I would like for us to look throughout the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at different parts of this Gospel to understand four uses, how Jesus presents himself as Son of Man in the Gospel of John. The first one is, Son of Man has come to reveal to us the things of heaven. Second, the Son of Man is glorified, but not the way we would expect. Third, the Son of Man demands a response. And fourthly, the Son of Man received authority to judge. Let's look at these four meanings of the phrase Son of Man as we think about the one who did become man on Christmas. The Son of Man has, re- has come as revealer. Look with me again to chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. The first use of the phrase Son of Man in John's Gospel is that He is the one coming from heaven. Actually, in chapter 1, Jesus referred to Himself for the first time as the one who connects heaven and earth. John chapter 1, verse 51 But in chapter 3, that connection is made even more explicit as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Unlike Daniel's vision, when the one like a son of man is coming on the clouds to receive all authority and reign, in John's gospel, the coming of the son of man has a different purpose. And his purpose is to reveal to us the things of heaven. Jesus says to Nicodemus, verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about the kingdom of God, about the requirements for anyone who would want to see the kingdom of God. And those requirements were quite foreign to the tradition in which Nicodemus was trained. Jesus said that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. What qualifies Jesus to speak about the kingdom of God is the reality that he has seen it. Friends, for all of us, heaven is our desired destination. At least I hope that that's your desired destination this morning. But for Jesus, he can speak about heaven as his origin. Jesus can speak about heavenly things not because he went there to see them, but because he came from there and he came to reveal them to us. So a son of man, he's a revealer of things our eyes cannot perceive because they are heavenly things. They are spiritual things. So what difference does it make in our lives if Jesus is the revealer? Here are a few questions I'd like to ask you this morning. Where do we turn in wanting to find what the future holds for us? Where do we turn to in wanting to find what the future holds for us? I see in Austin a growing trend among the dwellers of Austin of being interested in Eastern spirituality. By our house, a new office was opened last year for psychic reading. People in Austin are interested to know the meaning of life, their future, and many are convinced that they cannot turn to empirical data 
to provide that information. So where do they turn? They turn to all kinds of sources of spirituality. But Christianity and Christians turn to the testimony of Jesus because he claims about himself that he is the Son of Man who came to reveal to us the things of heaven because he came from heaven. He came to give us a perspective on our lives on earth, a perspective we cannot have unless it is revealed to us from above. Christians, too, need to be careful how we answer the following question about Jesus, the revealer. Where do we, Christians, turn to when we have questions about the ways of God, about how we should live our lives personally and corporately as the people of God? Now, our official answer to that question is we turn to the Bible. That's why we're Baptists, right? But when the rubber meets the road, do we really allow our practices to be guided by the revelation given to us in the Bible, by Jesus, by His apostles? Or do we turn to our traditions and our own understandings and our own preferences? I say this because even in our midst, there are some who are more interested to ensure that certain practices are Baptist rather than biblical. I'm reminded of a pastor here in Austin who shared with me um, that he, he tried to bring a particular change in his church. And as in all churches, when you bring a change, somebody will have an objection. And this person in his church raised up his hand and said, Pastor, that is not Baptist. And the, pap the pastor kindly and gently answered to this fellow believer, he said, Brother, throughout history, Baptists have always been more interested in the Bible than in being Baptist. Amen? Where do we turn when we think about how we should do certain things? Friends, it is not uncommon, and I, I've realized that oftentimes even Baptist churches pay more lip service to the idea that we're people of the book. And oftentimes, we're more interested in making sure that we stay Baptist rather than stay biblical. Where do we turn to when we are asking ourselves, how should we live? Nicodemus, as a, as a Jewish man, he knew all the Jewish traditions, and he had a hard time accepting Jesus' revelation. What about us? Do we? Jesus as Son of Man. He came to reveal Himself to us and He came to reveal the things of heaven to us so that we might live in light of those things. Second reality, the second meaning of the phrase the Son of Man is that the Son of Man has been glorified. The Son of Man will be glorified. That's the prophecy in Daniel. Jesus speaks in His Gospel about the fact that the Son of Man will be glorified. And he has been glorified, but not the way we would expect. We saw in verse 14, Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. In John's gospel, this idea of being lifted up was closely linked with the idea of being glorified. 
And, and we should not be surprised of this connection. We can understand it, for we often use similar language or close similar language when we hear someone say that someone is climbing the ladder of success. They're not really talking about literally climbing a literal ladder. It's just a way of, of speaking about being promoted. We may say the same about getting a promotion or getting a raise. Our world tells us that standing out above our peers is a good thing. We should desire it and we should recognize it. But Jesus explains to Nicodemus that this honor for him of, of being lifted up will be similar to Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness. For those of you who are not familiar with the Old Testament, that event took place in Israel's journey from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. Along the way, the Israelites grumbled against Moses and against God for lack of resources. And God disciplines them by sending serpents in the camp, biting them. And those who were bit by the serpents died. After a few of those deaths in the camp, the people of Israel realize, hold on, this is God doing this to us. Let's go to Moses so Moses can ask God to have mercy on us and forgive us for grumbling against him. So Moses goes to God, prays to God, confesses on behalf of the people their repentance, and God listens. But God doesn't take away the serpents. God listens by asking Moses to build up a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole high so that everyone in the camp who was bit by a snake could look to this bronze snake and live because of looking at that snake. Those who were bit and about to die because of the serpent's snake a bit would have a chance to keep on living because they look to the serpent that Moses lifted up on a pole. And Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. But his glorification will be in terms similar to how Moses lifted up a bronze serpent. The only difference is that now on the pole will be nailed not a bronze serpent, but the Son of Man. This is how, in the Gospel of John, the Son of Man is glorified. He's lifted up. But in John's Gospel, Whenever Jesus talks about the hour of his glorification, he's talking about his crucifixion. John chapter 12, verse 23 and 24, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The punchline in Jesus' exaltation and his glorification in John's gospel always refers to his crucifixion. 
Yes, in John's Gospel, the glorification of the Son of Man is actually the act of His sacrificial death as a substitute for mankind. This is how the Son of Man is glorified. By dying for man. Friends, this has significant implications for us who claim to be Christ's followers, especially as we celebrate Christmas. On this side of heaven, the glory of God is displayed not only through miraculous signs, not only through angels coming out in the darkness of, of the sky and, and shouting forth the praise of God, not only through enduring uh, or doing the miraculous things that Jesus has done for us, healing the sick, giving life to the dead, but on this side of heaven, the glory of God is manifested through enduring the suffering, through being obedient to God even to the point of death. On this side of heaven, Christians can speak about the glory of God veiled in suffering, veiled in humility, veiled in simplicity, even in poverty for the sake of the one who modeled for us a different kind of glory than the, the glory this world promises us. Friends, this is how the glory of the Son of Man it described in the Gospel of John. Yes, Jesus turned water into wine to bring new life to a party that exhausted its resources. Yes, Jesus healed the slave of a Roman centurion, showing that he has authority. Yes, Jesus multiplied bread in the wilderness. Yes, Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb. Yes, Jesus' power affects every aspect of our lives. But in John's Gospel, all these miracles that are signs of God's glory are actually pointing to the hour of Jesus' ultimate glory. They all point to the cross. No wonder that even the details of Christ's birth were so radical. He came to a manger. My wife and I were talking this week about needing to buy a bed for our son because he's, he needs another bed. He's, he's growing. And we're thinking about, you know, one of the nicest beds we could get that he would enjoy, that he would really like. Jesus came to a manger. Simplicity. Poverty. That's where the glory of God manifests itself. Actually, even the way Jesus was born for us tells us that the glory of the world is not compatible with God's definition of glory. Friends, the way most of us celebrate Christmas is so opposite of how the first Christmas took place. For us, Christmas is about being home with family and close friends. For Jesus, it was about being in a manger away from his home. For us, Christmas is about indulging in shopping and gifts and glamorous decorations and rich traditions. For Jesus, it was an experience of humility and simplicity. Some of us have fallen in the trap of worshiping Christmas and its traditions, but we could not comprehend Christmas without the richness of traditions and decorations and warmth. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not against Christmas traditions. I'm not against decorations. I'm not against gifts. 
I think some of this, they're wonderful reminders of what Christ produces in us once he comes in us. He brings joy. He brings peace. He brings fellowship so people do get together. So I'm not against that. But I wonder how many of us, how many of us have fallen into the trap of worshiping Christmas more than worshiping the Christ who brought Christmas to us? Could we celebrate Christmas without some of these cultural accessories? Would the glory of Christmas be the same for us if we adopted the values of simplicity and humility? Let's be honest. If we took away some of the wonderful traditions, would you agree that most people would say, not you, others, would you agree that most people would say, Christmas wouldn't be the same. But that's the point. The glory of the first Christmas was so different in nature than the glory of our Christmases that I wonder which one got it right. Instead of adopting an attitude of indulging in more eating, more spending, more abundance at this Christmas we would seek to cultivate the attitude of humility, simplicity, and solitude. And instead of worshiping Christmas, what if we turned our eyes to see the glory of God veiled in poverty, veiled in humility, veiled in suffering? For the hour of glorification for the Son of Man is ultimately the hour of His self-sacrifice. Point number three. The Son of Man demands a response. In the second part of verse 13, 15 of the chapter we read, uh, we have great promise that Jesus gives that when the Son of Man is lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the serpent, He's going to be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Yes, because the Son of Man is lifted up and glorified through crucifixion just as a serpent was lifted up by Moses, in order to give life to the Israelites who were bit by the snake. Now the Son of Man is going to be lifted up so that those who look to Him in faith may have life. Not just physical life, not just a longer physical life, but an eternal life. This eternal life can become ours only if we look to Him in faith. Only if we believe in the Son of Man, if we believe in His identity, if we believe in His sacrifice for us. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a, a man who was blind. The priests were upset on Him because the healing took place on the Sabbath. So they questioned the man, who was the one who healed him? And the man doesn't know. And he gets a little of trouble. His parents get involved, even though he's 40. Um, and, and, and then he gets put out. And Jesus meets him. Jesus finds out that he was put out. Jesus meets him, and he has a question for him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's the answer. That's a question that Jesus wants to pose to every one of us today. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Because to accept who he truly is, to accept the claims he made about himself as the revealer, as the only way to heaven, as the one who has lifted up on the cross in order to give life, to believe that means that we too can have life. And this is an important characteristic of the Son of Man. 
He calls men and women, young and old, to respond to Him. Those who refuse to believe cannot partake of the eternal life He came to bring. Friend, it does not matter if you call yourself a Christian or not. It does not matter what you have been through in your life. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe that His sacrifice is the only way for our debt before God to be paid for? Do you believe that to be the case in your heart? The faith Jesus calls us to have is not simply an intellectual assent. It's not simply a faith that acts as an acknowledgement of God's power or of God's actions. Do you know that demons have that kind of faith too? Demons believe that Jesus did all the things he did. Jesus, demons believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. The faith Jesus calls us to have is an internalizing of his sacrifice for us, for our, in our lives. And this is expressed in chapter 6, where Jesus again is speaking about himself as the Son of Man. The whole chapter speaks about how Jesus presented himself as the Son of Man, but he says something very shocking in this chapter. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, this is no easy passage to understand. We could get the point that Son of Man, he's a revealer. He came to reveal to us the things of heaven. We could understand that as a Son of Man, he was raised up, lifted up, in order to provide life for us. But now he's saying that as Son of Man, he must be eaten? The, the, the flesh of the Son of Man must be eaten? And his blood must be drunk? That's just a little too much, right? It's, it is a difficult passage for sure. Some think that this refers to the Lord's Supper. But in John 6, Jesus is not referring to the Lord's Supper. I think the Lord's Supper is referring to what Jesus is speaking about here. In John 6. The point of the imagery is that it wants to communicate that it's not enough just simply to have a certain assent, acknowledgement of who Jesus claims to be. He wants to be taken in. Now, we use the idea of eating uh, in a lot of situations. Um, people who really like reading books, they say that they devour books. Well, they don't really eat the books, but it's a way of saying they really enjoy it. They really got into it. Um, we may also say people who are, not, who, are, who are not yet convinced of an idea and want to think a little more about it, they would say, let me chew on that. Right? A grandparents, when they see their grandchildren, so precious, young, precious, they may say, they're so precious, I want to eat them alive. Right? We use this idea of eating to say that it's like we want that to be a part of us. It's so precious to us. We're so committed to it. We're so, it's so part of who we are. I think Jesus in chapter 6 is using that imagery of eating and drinking with that kind of use of saying, he must, the Son of Man, must become part of us. It is not the kind of acknowledgement of the Son of Man as someone from a distance or as someone who simply is honored as a religious guru or simply one who gives a ticket to heaven, but one who must become part of us. 
His followers must respond to Him with a total involvement. Number three. Number, that was number three. Number four. The Son of Man received the authority to judge. The Son of Man received the authority to judge. The last characteristic of the phrase Son of Man in the Gospel of John is in chapter 5. And He, God, has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Being the Son of Man gives Jesus a right to execute judgment. Yes, a Son of Man, He walked where humans walk. He knows our situation and our circumstances. He knows our world and experienced its corruption. As He healed the sick, He gave life to the dead. He came to reveal to us about another reign, the reign of God from a different world, and to provide the way for us to experience that reign in our lives. And now, He calls us to receive Him to respond to Him, to taste Him. But we must know that as a Son of Man, He also received the authority to judge us. Hence, it's all the more imperative that if we have heard His message and what He's about, we must respond to Him with a kind of faith that receives Jesus in our hearts. The psalmist said, Taste and see how good the Lord is. Jesus is saying, if you don't eat my bread and drink my blood, you cannot have life in you. If Jesus is the bread of life, he must be eaten. But be, friend, be aware that if we refuse to respond to the Son of Man in the way he calls us, a time will come when he will come as a judge because the Son of Man has received the authority to judge. Let me ask you, as you celebrate His birth, as you are ready to meet, our, as you're ready to, to engage with Him as a baby born in Bethlehem, are you ready also to meet Him as your judge? When you will stand before Him, the, He whom you have worshipped as a baby in Bethlehem, when you will stand before Him as a judge, what will you say to Him? Will you stand condemned or will you be, be among those of whom Paul wrote, Therefore, there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you don't have the assurance that you will be in that group, friend, I plead with you to respond to Christ today. It is a response that happens in your heart. Repent and believe. And if that is your desire, I encourage you to share that desire with someone else at the end of the service. I'd love to talk to you. But if you are not assured of that reality that you will meet Jesus as your judge and you will have that condemnation taken care of because you have trusted in Jesus as he was lifted on the cross to take upon himself the condemnation of all mankind. If you don't have that assurance, I encourage you today to respond to him. Jesus Son of Man. At Christmas, we celebrate the event of God's becoming man. And no title summarizes best this event, this incarnation, than the title Son of Man. But to our surprise, in the Gospel of John, the title has four meanings that are not as intuitive as we initially thought. A Son of Man, He came from heaven as a revealer of the things of heaven. A Son of Man, He came to be glorified, but now... 
He's glorified through the cross, not the way we would expect it. A son of man, he demands a response of receiving him into our lives by faith and repentance. A son of man, he receives authority to judge us. And he will come again on the clouds to receive his full reign of a kingdom that will never be destroyed. On that day, will you be part of that kingdom? Let us pray.